Judges is a good name for this book because if you read it, it will judge you. And it will judge everything that you do. It will judge everything that we do. Judges forces us to be honest. It forces us to be honest about the world we live in. It forces us to be honest about this faith that we proclaim. Judges will not let us walk away with a kind of a candy land, glossed over faith that says everything's okay and we won't, we'll just ignore all the things that trouble us and seem difficult. Judges takes us right to God and says, here, we've got to deal with these things. And I want to remind you of some of the themes that we've picked up after two weeks studying Judges so far. One of those is, what do you do when the promised land doesn't seem to be everything that it was promised? That opens up some questions. That means, did did God fail us? Did God abandon us? We, We may think it's inappropriate to even ask such questions. But whether we ask those questions or not, those questions sometimes... They fly through our mind. They enter into our heart. Or they're the questions that our friends ask, even if we don't get close to that. But sometimes, what we think is the promised land doesn't seem to be everything that's promised. And Israel learned that when they went into the land that they longed for, that generations hoped for after God delivered them from Egypt. Second question that Judges brings to us is, What do we do when our deliverance doesn't seem to be delivering? What we mean by that is we know or we claim that we've been saved. We claim that that God has saved us and we want to talk about salvation. But sometimes it just honestly seems like the saved life that God has given us just isn't looking like salvation. And if we're honest with ourselves and we're honest with one another, sometimes our deliverance doesn't seem to be so quick and easy that it is hard to live like saved people in a broken world. Judges says, if you ever feel that way, you're not alone. And it's not wrong to feel that way. The third theme that comes out of Judges is, what do you do when you don't have a king? And of course, The answer that judges cannot give, but the gospel can give is, oh, but we do have a king. We have a king in Jesus Christ, and we need to start living like we do. We need to own it with all the joy that brings. Judges then takes us on this incredible journey. There's one more theme that comes out in Judges 4 and 5, and it really runs through the whole book, but you see it most clearly in chapters 4 and 5, and that is, it's the theme of the faith and the vision and the courage of women of God. The Judges has sometimes been called a book that is unkind to women. There, there, are, there are women who do both good and bad and everything in between in Judges. And Judges will make us pay attention to the importance in, you know, from God's perspective of women. Because as we count it, the judge that comes next is Deborah. But between Deborah, or between Ehud and Deborah, 
there's this mention in chapter 3, verse 31, of Shamgar. He just, I always thought that 331 was the only mention of Shamgar. After Ehud came Shamgar, son of Anath, who struck down 600 Philistines with an ox goad. He too saved Israel. And I've always loved that statement. He too saved Israel. It's like, a, it's like a little passing comment. Oh yeah, there was Shamgar. Did he save Israel? Yeah, he killed 600 guys with a stick. Well, that's pretty good effort. You know. Samson, you know, if he really tried, maybe he could have reached Samson's level of 1,000. But I think maybe it was a bad day for Shamgar. He was like, you know, 600, come on, this is enough. This guy's mysterious. But I've learned something about Shamgar. He's probably not an Israelite. Shamgar is not a Hebrew name. Anath is certainly not a Hebrew name. And to be the son of Anath, Anath was actually the name of a Canaanite deity. Shamgar is probably an outsider. He's not one of us. He's not one of our Hebrew people. And yet he gets mentioned. And I always thought that 331 was the only mention, but guess what? Shamgar becomes legendary. He becomes the kind of guy that you want to draw battle pictures of. He becomes legendary because he even shows up in other art. He shows up in the song of Deborah in chapter 5. When she's singing her song in verse 6 and she says, In the days of Shamgar. Yeah. He gets mentioned. And so he's something of a legend, even of the days of Deborah. But that's all we really get on Shamgar, and we move forward to Deborah. Deborah, her name means the bee. And I don't know if that's because it's sweet like a honeybee or she stings like a bee. You can do your own Muhammad Ali joke there. But anyway, what's really interesting about Deborah, and, and you don't notice this at first, and I think it's a tendency of English translators, is she's called Deborah, the wife of Lapidoth. And that's an odd name. That's an odd name for us, and it'd actually be an odd name for anyone. Wife of Lapidoth may not be the best translation. Okay? And there's a lot of this in Judges because we haven't always known what to do with this book that's very honest about God and very honest with us, and sometimes we're not very honest about it. It really means the the woman of torches. Because Lapidoth is plural. It's a Hebrew word for torches. Here's the thing that's said about Deborah. She's a prophet. Not the wife of a prophet. Not the sister of a prophet. She's a prophet. That's plain. That's in the text. Chapter 4. After Ehud's death, the Israelites again did evil in the Lord's sight. So the Lord turned them over to King Jabin of Hazor, a Canaanite king. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Harosheth Hagoyim. Now that's a Hebrew name. Sisera, who had 900 iron chariots, ruthlessly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help. Deborah, the wife of Lapidoth, was a prophet who was judging Israel at that time. And she would sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel, another Hebrew name, in the hill country of Ephraim, Hebrew name, and the Israelites would go to her for judgment. She leads Israel, not her husband, not her son. She leads. Now, I'm simply pointing that out to say that I think it's interesting 
that Scripture remembers that God appoints this woman to do what God has asked her to do. And her value and her worth is not found in whose wife she is or whose mother she is. In fact, she's often remembered as the mother of Israel. Here is a woman who steps up and takes on the responsibility that God has given her so that the mission of his people on earth will be continued because Deborah rises up and calls upon, as we said in the prayer this morning, the men and women, especially the men of Israel, she calls upon them to rise up because they are threatened by oppression. She is the one who has the vision, who calls upon them to take down the oppressor that could threaten their existence and their identity as God's people in this world. The other side has their kings. The Canaanites have their king, their king in Hazor. And every king has generals. Israel doesn't have a king. Israel is ruled by judges, by these bringers of justice, these charismatic leaders. And by the way, of all of the judges in Judges, Deborah's really the only one who's leading. She's the only one who's giving counsel, who's bringing the words of God to the people. Ehud's making swords and he's running off and doing assassin runs. Gideon's fighting battles. He's more like an army general. Samson? Hey, I love Samson. But that guy, he's got woman troubles, okay? And he really, we'll we'll get to him in a little while. I mean, he's got big time woman troubles, all right? Um, And then he ends up with troubles with the neighbors, all right? Because they're the kinfolk. They end up being, anyway, we'll get into that later. But thank God that Deborah is there and the people can go to her for counsel in the Word of God. Whatever ideas of leadership or government you've got here, the point is she's a prophet. She's bringing them the Word of God and she's calling upon them to do the godly thing. If Israel has its leaders, just like the Canaanites have their kings, then the leaders of Israel also have their generals. So, Against Sisera, and by the way, as a military general, you you may have missed it. He's got 900 chariots, but not just ordinary chariots. These are iron chariots, okay? This is high tech. The man has tanks, and they are controlling the highways and the byways of the promised land. And they are turning the promised land into something that makes it no longer quite the promised land that it needs to be. So she has her general, Barak, whose name means, I mean, again, names become so important, the translation of them. Lapidoth means torches. Deborah means bee. Barak means lightning. She's got general lightning on her side. Tell me this isn't a comic book. Torch woman and general lightning, okay? And... Uh, so she calls upon her general to lead the army. And I've got a guest artist helping me this week, and I invite contributions of, of God's people. I happen to know this one. My son Wyatt has contributed some artwork here. His interpretation of Deborah is better than mine because he understood that she's, she's not some uh, you know, dilettante in a flowing robe, but she's a warrior woman. And so the story picks up at this point where she calls upon Barak. She's sitting there, remember, she's leading, she's bringing judgment, she's bringing leadership to Israel. One day she sent for Barak, son of Abinoam, who lived in Kadesh, in the land of Naphtali. 
And she said to him, This is what Yahweh, the God of Israel, commands you. Call out 10,000 warriors from the tribes of Naphtali and Zebulun at Mount Tabor, and I will call out Sisera, commander of Jabin's army, along with his chariots and warriors to the Kishon River. There I will give you victory over him. Deborah typically says things that are like any true commander. Her first words to Barak, are, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, commands you. Call out. In some translations, she'll say, rise up. Get up. She's saying, it's time. Maybe Barak should have figured this out on his own. Maybe he's waiting for Deborah. He certainly has some respect for her and for her leadership. But she is issuing commands. And she's speaking for the Lord. The Lord does not disappear in all of this. And she, is not, she does not forget But like, not since Joshua or Caleb has there been a person this courageous who sees the problem and says, we need to act. We need 10,000 warriors. We'll get them from Naphtali and Zebulun. Which, by the way, that's that's not just accidental. That's not just extra details. That's not just sprinkles on the donut. When she says Naphtali and Zebulun, she's mentioning two of the tribes. And later on, when you read her song in chapter 5, She's going to mention that some of the tribes showed up, some of them didn't. And that's going to be remembered, because it says something. Well, Barak's been given his orders, he's been given his, his charge, and his response is, if you go with me, I'll go. But if you don't go with me, I won't go. People have interpreted this in different ways. Does this mean that Barak's afraid? I mean, is he going to hide behind her? Is he shy? I don't know if I can do this by myself. Remember that first time you were a kid and they sent you to go, you know, order your own food at the food court? You know, go ahead, go do it. I can't talk to people. You know, uh, go ask them for extra ketchup and napkins. That's too hard. Is this Barak? Is, Is he finding this difficult? Or is it the fact that he says, look, I know that we don't win this battle unless you come with us. You're the prophet. You're the one who sees things. We want your vision on the battlefield. It may be that Barak understands he's not threatened by our leadership, and he says, look, without you, we don't see what God needs us to do to win this battle because we've never gone to war like this, much less against a guy who has 900 iron chariots. These guys are lucky to have sticks, and they don't have Shamgar. Okay? So, Deborah's response is interesting. She says, very well, I will go with you, but there's a condition. But you will receive no honor in this venture, for the Lord's victory over Sisera will be at the hands of a woman. Now, if that's all you knew of the story, you'd say, oh, that means that she gets her name out there as the winner of the battle. Because she was handing this off to him and saying, Barak, do you want to win this victory? I'll give it to you. You can get the trophy. You can get the award. No, I'm not going unless you go. Okay, but a woman will get the victory. And maybe he's thinking, that's fine as long as it's you. And so the bee and the lightning, they go to war. We pick up the story then at that point. Then Deborah said to Barak, get ready. There there she is issuing those commands again. Get ready. She says, get up. 
get re- rise up, get ready, get ready. This is the day that the Lord will give you victory over Sisera, for the Lord is marching ahead of you. I kind of think Barak made the right choice having her go. Because if he can't say something like that to the troops, Deborah as a prophet can. God is marching ahead of you. So Barak led his 10,000 warriors down the slopes of Mount Tabor into battle. And when he attacked, the Lord, notice that the Lord gets into the fight. The Lord threw Sisera and all of his chariots and warriors into a panic. And Sisera leaped down from his chariot and he escaped on foot. And then Barak chased the chariots and the enemy away all the way to Herosheth Hagoyim, killing all of Sisera's warriors. Not a single one was left alive. None of them, but Sisera escapes. So how do you defeat a man with 900 iron chariots? How do you defeat someone with more firepower and weaponry? Psychological warfare. Panic. Of course, it helps, too, if the Lord is your PSYOP department, all right? And he throws them into a panic. Not really sure how he did that. Maybe that Sisera and his 900 iron charioteers didn't expect to see resistance coming from 10,000. It may be that they didn't expect to see any resistance at all. And so the battle is won. They've routed everyone. And who gets the credit for it? Is it Deborah? Is it Barak? Well, no. We keep reading. Now, Haber the Kenite, verse 11, a descendant of Moses' brother-in-law, had moved away from the other members of his tribe, and he pitched his tent by the oak of Zananim near Kadesh. Haber's middle name is not the, okay? He's not Haber T. Kenite. He's Haber the Kenite. What's a Kenite? Well, a Kenite is not an Israelite. In other words, Haber is not kinfolk, all right? I I know, I know. He's kind of married into Moses' family there. But the point is, he's not us. He's an outsider, him and his family, just like Shamgar may have been. Sisera was told, verse 12, that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, and he called for all 900 of his iron chariots and all of his warriors, and they marched from there to the Kishon River. Uh, Skip ahead. Meanwhile, verse 17, this is after no one was left alive. Verse 17, Sisera ran to the tent of Jael, the wife of Haber the Kenite, because Haber's family was on friendly terms with the Canaanite king in Hazor. Haber is definitely not one of the Israelites. He's on good terms with the Canaanites. So it makes sense that, that Sisera says, I'm going to the tent of people, allies. And he goes, not to Haber, but to Haber's wife, Jael. When he goes to Jael... She goes out to meet him. She says, come into my tent, sir. Come in. Don't be afraid. So he went into her tent, and she covered him with a blanket. She's hiding him. Please give me some water, he said. I'm thirsty. So she gave him milk instead from a leather bag and covered him again. Stand at the door of the tent, he said. If anybody comes and asks you if there's anyone here, say no. That's a pretty good translation. It's really, there's a little bit of humor in there. There is humor in the Bible. He says, if anyone shows up and says, is there a man in here? You say no. 
This is the Israelite way of saying, hey, Sisera, you're not acting like much of a man. Hmm. He's hiding. And he's hiding in the tent of Haber's wife. When Sisera fell asleep from exhaustion, Jael quietly crept up on him with a hammer and a tent peg in her hand, and she drove the tent peg through his temple and into the ground so that he died. Yeah. And uh, when Barak came looking for Sisera, Jael went out to meet him, and she said, Come, and I'll show you the man you're looking for. And so he followed her into the tent and found Sisera lying there dead with a tent peg through his temple. So on that day, Israel saw God defeat Jabin the Canaanite king, and from that time on, Israel became stronger and stronger against the king of the Canaanites until they finally destroyed him. In the song that follows, Deborah and Barak singing their song. It's not just Deborah's song. Barak has some, you know, verse 1, chapter 5. On that day, Deborah and Barak, son of Abinoam, sang this song. Verse 6 says, In the days of Shamgar, son of Anath, and in the days of Jael, people avoided the main roads, and travelers stayed on the winding pathways. We'll come back to that. But let's get back to Jael and that tent peg. Aren't you glad that I edited this picture? That, that's, that's not good camping practice. Tent pegs don't stay well when they go through someone's skull. But the um, people have criticized Jael. They've made her out to be insane, mad, angry. They've said, I've even read comments that say, Jael defied hospitality. She was not being a hospitable hostess. You think? But in Scripture, when Deborah sings of her, she says, most blessed of women be Jael, the wife of Haber the Kenite. She put her hand to the tent peg and her right hand to the workman's mallet, and she struck Sisera a blow. She crushed his head. She shattered and pierced his temple. He sank. He fell. He lay at her feet. At her feet. He sank. He fell. Where he sank. There he fell. Dead. People say contemporary worship is repetitive. Okay, here it is, one of the oldest texts in the Bible. If you didn't get the point by now, the point is, he's dead. He sank and he fell. But she's called blessed. Why? Because it benefits Israel? No, take a look again at what happens here. Who's the one that defies hospitality? Is it Jael? Or is it Sisera who should have approached Haber rather than Jael? He should have gone to his ally Haber, not Jael. And he should not have asked her to lie for him. Tell them that there's no one here. Hide me. Give me water. Give me hospitality. And when it says that Jael, who's you know, called blessed of the tent-dwelling women, okay, and she's making her home there in the tent, and it's not that she's going camping. She's a, she's a homemaker. When it says that she kills him with a mallet and a peg, that's not unlike saying that she killed him with a, you know, just, just to be stereotypical, and I know, I admit this is stereotypical, that she killed him with a rolling pin and a butcher knife, okay? 
In other words, she used the weapons that she had as a woman in that society to defeat the enemy. What was it that they were doing that was so bad? Go back to the cycle that we've talked about in Judges. The people do evil, we saw that. They're oppressed by an enemy, we saw that. The people cry out, we saw that. God sends a judge to deliver them. Now wait, did we really see that one when Judges 4 starts out? We're told Deborah's a prophet. We're told that she's judging Israel, but she's already judging. She's already that leader. She has Barak, a general. Maybe he was the judge. I mean, over in Hebrews 11, he gets mentioned and Deborah gets slighted kind of seems unfair to be honest but we'll talk about that another time or is it jail who delivers them the same way Shamgar did you know Shamgar did what he did when he killed 600 Philistines for whatever reasons he had but when it says he too saved Israel I don't think that's just a passing comment I think it's a way of saying that God used even someone like Shamgar I mean maybe those guys owed him money Maybe he lost a card game to them, but in doing what he did to kill those Philistines, the end result was it also saved Israel. He too saved Israel. And of jail, it's saying she too saved Israel. That's why Deborah and Barak, when they're singing their song, mention Shamgar. They mention jail. We didn't see a definitive judge rise up. Deborah's named a judge. But what happens is you see God step in and he works with all, with Deborah, with Barak, with Shamgar, with Jael. Works with all of them to take action against the injustice. And the hint of the injustice, it's a different kind of oppression than what we saw with Moab. Than what we saw with Eglon. In the time of Shamgar, son of Anath, and in the time of Jael, public roads were abandoned. Travelers went by back roads. They're singing their song, and they're saying, do you remember the days of Shamgar and Jael? Those were tough times. The economy was bad because Sisera and the Canaanites controlled the main roads, and that created economic oppression. That's not a very poetic way to say it, but that's what they're saying through song. And so Deborah sees the effect, how that's weakening, how that's dividing Israel. It's dividing the tribes. It's separating them out. They can't trade with one another. They can't do business with one another. They're hurting. They depend on others. They're losing their strength and vitality. And Deborah sees this. This is why she's called the mother of Israel. And so she calls all of Israel to act as one, to take action. And if the final blow is struck by a Kenite woman in a tent, then she says, that's all God's doing. But there were those who did not take action. Oh, it's in the song. Verse 13. Down from Tabor marched the few against the nobles. The people of the Lord marched down against the mighty warriors. They came down from Ephraim. That's one of the tribes. A land that once belonged to the Amalekites. They followed you, Benjamin. That's one of the tribes. With your troops. From Machir, the commanders marched down. From Zebulun came those who carry a commander's staff. The princes of Issachar were with Deborah and Barak. And they followed Barak rushing into the valley. But in the tribe of Reuben, there was great indecision. Why did you sit at home among the sheepfolds to hear the shepherds whistle for their flocks? 
Yes, in the tribe of Reuben, there was great indecision. Eugene Peterson, in his translation, says they're sitting around second-guessing everything. Gilead remained east of the Jordan. That's one of the tribes. And Dan stayed home. That's a tribe, not an individual. Asher sat unmoved at the seashore, remaining in his harbors. Sounds like they're saying, where were you, Asher? Oh, I went to the beach. He's just doing business. But Zebulun risked his life, as did Naphtali on the heights of the battlefield. In other words, not everybody stood up and took action, even though it was needful for all of them to ask at one. Second guessing, playing it safe. They were distracted. They were lazy. They were unprepared. These are the things. Remember, one of the themes of Judges is, what if your deliverance, what if your salvation by God is not every, it does not seem to be delivering? Maybe it's because, as they say in the ads, do you suffer from one of these? Second-guessing, playing it safe, distractions, being lazy and unprepared. Deborah and Barak's song says, we need to overcome those. If your deliverance does not seem to be delivering, are you suffering from one of these? Tonight, what we're going to do in the 6 p.m. assembly is we're going to look at the 10 forms of twisted thinking. And I'm going to post this. There's a document that's been around for 30 years. It's... uh, it's, it's, it's from counseling studies about the ten forms of twisted thinking. And some of these things are on that list. And I tell you, this is the kind of thinking. In certain places they call it stinking thinking. This is the kind of stinking thinking that keeps us from acting like saved people. From acting like the people of God. And I think there ought to be a biblical response to each of these. And I think Judges is confronting us with that reality. When you can overcome these, then you can overcome that twisted thinking that causes us not to take action. And instead, we can become like those tribes that do take action because they hear the word of the Lord from a prophet. So to sum it up, in this story, a judge is a deliverer, one who brings justice. Who brings the justice in this story? Is it Deborah? Yes. Is it Barak? Yes. Is it Jael? Yes. She delivers the final blow. It's even Shamgar. Whatever strange, mysterious person he is, he too saved Israel. Jael, she too saved Israel. And the message here is God will use even unlikely heroes to deliver justice. Now, when Jael and Shamgar and Deborah are called unlikely heroes, that doesn't mean they're disqualified. Deborah is not disqualified for some reason. Jael is not disqualified. Shamgar is not disqualified because he's one of the outsiders. If God wants to use them to bring his justice, he will. He can. And who are we? To question that. There's an old joke about people like us making decisions about our preachers. And they look over all of the candidates among Christ's disciples. And one by one, they start scratching them off the list. Peter seems to waver. He's got kind of a potty mouth. You know, he talks a lot. 
Uh, you know, I don't know about some of these other guys. Simon, he can't hold his temper. The guy's a madman. He's a, he's a rebel. Levi, oh, he's a tax collector. There is one that kind of rises to the top, and we really like him. Who's that? Judas. He's really good with money, and he always seems to say the right thing, and he knows a lot of influential people. And yet the one that we would call our candidate looks good in our eyes, looks likely to us. But God often looks at the unlikely heroes. You see him doing that again when he tells Samuel to go and anoint David. In Hebrew, Samuel says, this shrimpy guy? No, that's not what it says in Hebrew. But that's really Samuel's reaction. He's going, him of all people? You want him? Yes, I want him. And you'll see that in the judges as well. I say that to you for this reason. Some of you here, some of us here, we disqualify ourselves. And we disqualify one another because we think, well, I'm the unlikely choice. You are what God has called you to be. And no matter how anyone else sees you, no matter how you see yourself, how, you know, if you have too inflated of an opinion of yourself, God sees the truth. If you have too disparaging of an opinion of yourself... God sees the truth. I would ask you to listen to the words of God. Like Barak listened to Deborah. And he knew that he needed that word of God to give him the true vision of he, who he was so he could accomplish God's purposes. God can make bringers of justice out of us. He's calling upon us to overcome oppression. He's calling upon us to overcome the consequences of sin. And when we let sin rule, when we let the enemy rule, when we let the enemy take over and tell us who we are and who everyone else is, we fail. We're divided. And that means we get conquered. But we've been delivered. You know, some of you, you, we're calling on you to sign up for retreats. We're calling on you to get involved in ministries. Some of you have great opportunities to lead ministries, to serve in ministries. Some of you will be called upon to be leaders, shepherds in this church, servants, prayer leaders, okay? And every, I've, I've been doing this long enough now, I, I've seen it, I've seen it over and over again. People will say, yeah, but not me. You don't know about me. I do know about you. But more than that, God knows about you. And if God has called on you to bring justice, to bring righteousness into the world, then trust in him. I don't blame you for doubting yourself. I don't blame you for questioning. You know, I don't know that I'm going to have everything I need. I'll tell you another truth that I know, and I know this about myself. You don't have everything you need. Neither do I. None of us are qualified in that sense. But God qualifies us through his grace and mercy, through his spirit and his power. And he will empower us to be his agents of justice in a broken world. That's how you live like people of God in a broken world. As we sing this song, we want to offer the Lord, the King's invitation to come and listen to Him. To let Him give you His orders for how you can serve Him. There will be elders down front here. There will be elders in room 100. These shepherds want to pray with you. They want to hear your requests. Just however we can minister to one another at this point, we want to do so. Let's stand and let's sing this song and declare our confidence in God.